In beginning any series of lectures on the Bible and its connection to Western art and Western culture, it is useful to get a certain degree of historical perspective because the Bible, being a very ancient text, seems, well, rather distant from our present-day concerns and in many respects seems separate and dissimilar to the traditions of Western literature and art, at least insofar as we have immediate access to them within this century. It is in some respects useful for our purposes to look back prior to the age in which the biblical stories were redacted and put together and look to the kind of foundations of Near Eastern and Semitic myths to see if we can't get a certain degree of perspective on the stories which the Hebrew Bible tells us and to also get a sense of the historical distance between the Bible and ourselves. It's often the case that when we study the Bible, because it seems so ancient and antique to us, we feel a need to, to treat it as though it were in a completely separate age in the past. In fact, there are works of literature in the Western tradition, or at least in the tradition that feeds into the Bible, which are at least as old in reference to the Bible as the Bible is with reference to us. In other words, there is a, an epic, uh, a Near Eastern Mesopotamian epic called the Epic of Gilgamesh, which informs our reading of the Bible and which in fact goes back to the earliest strata of human society and human history. So there are parts of the Epic of Gilgamesh which are borrowed and redacted and brought into the biblical tradition. There are questions of genre and questions of intent which the study of Gilgamesh can help, which we can use uh, in the study of Gilgamesh to help inform our reading of the Bible. And third, it's very useful for us to, find, to think about the problem of redaction, how it is that a story or a series of overlapping stories are gradually or perhaps immediately merged together to form one unified story. Our investigation of the myth of Gilgamesh, which is a very, very ancient tale, um, will help us bring together and clarify some of the things that we will have to consider in the process of reading the Bible and reading it closely. Now, the Gilgamesh epic is important for a number of reasons. First off, it's a relatively recent um, acquisition. It's only in the last century or so that enough of the Sumerian and Bab or not Sumerian, but Babylonian tablets have been translated and found so that we could piece the epic together. Prior to this century, our tiny fragments of this epic only suggested that there was an epic tradition in ancient Mesopotamia. We didn't know very much about it. As it turns out, further archaeological investigation, particularly at the University of Pennsylvania, has shed new light on this, which has allowed us to bring together the various tablets which have been found, which tell the Gilgamesh story. And once we formulate this epic, we are given a new perspective, a new way of thinking about the Hebrew Bible, which will turn out to be very useful for our purposes. Now, there are versions of the Gilgamesh epic handed down over a period of many centuries in the ancient Near East. It is likely that the Gilgamesh epic was originally a separate set of stories, perhaps with separate heroes, which were eventually merged into the single hero Gilgamesh. And there are versions of this story in Sumerian, in Babylonian, in Hittite, in Akkadian, and in Assyrian. Because Mesopotamia is invaded regularly throughout its, its ancient history, as new groups of invaders come in, they absorb what's left of the culture in the uh, area that they've conquered, and they often adapt these stories, particularly the epic story tradition, to suit their own purposes. So there are many versions of the Gilgamesh story, but the story has some sort of permanent value to the residents of Mesopotamia, and for that reason, despite the regular waves of invasion, the Gilgamesh epic is gradually fleshed together, repeatedly redacted, and eventually what we get is the, is 
parts which form the story that we have today. Now before talking about Gilgamesh himself, and Gilgamesh is a real person, right? he's in the uh, Babylonian king list from about 2700 BC, it's worth thinking about epic though, before we go too much further into the details of the story. The reason why is that epic is the most archaic form, not merely of literature, but of the encyclopedia. Every, or all, virtually every ancient archaic culture has an epic tradition, and built into the epic tradition is their whole view of the world. It is not merely a literary exercise, as we might think of, say, Paradise Lost. Instead, the epic tradition in the ancient world contains within it their political theory, it contains within it their sense of ethics, their sense of law, their understanding of things like physics and the physical world. All of their knowledge is packed together in one in one easily transferable form. It is worth noting that at the time when Gilgamesh is put together, and also at the time when the Hebrew Bible is redacted, literacy is a rare gift. It is an unusual attribute. Most of society is illiterate, and at the time when epic is put together, and at the time when the stories that comprise the Hebrew Bible are formulated, they are transferred by word of mouth. It is an, an oral tradition. So, like other epic traditions, the Gilgamesh tradition is, an or is oral, and what this oral tradition contains is the entire accumulated wisdom of the society that produces them. All right. Now, in addition to that, epic always has a certain set of necessities, certain milestones that we find in every epic story. This will be true for the Epic of Gilgamesh, but it'll also be true for the Iliad and the Odyssey, be true for the Ramayana in, in India, it'll be true for the Sundiata in West Africa, it'll be true for the Song of Roland in Western Europe. All epics essentially do the same thing. Once you realize what they do, you can actually sort of predict the path that an epic is going to take. In the first case, an epic always entails a journey. You can't have an epic at home. If you're going to have an epic, there has to be the movement from one place to another place, and the change in location will mirror some psychic change. In addition, every epic has to have a hero. There are no anonymous epic heroes. You actually find out what some specific and superior man does, and in every case, the epic hero represents the linguistic and cultural group that generates it. So, the epic hero is a great example of the society that produces it. For example, uh, Roland the, is a great example of the medieval knight. He's a fine and superior kind of warrior. Achilles is a superior Greek warrior. Um, someone like uh, David in the, story, in the uh, Hebrew Bible is also a paragon, a sort of epic hero, when he meets Goliath. In each case, in the case of David representing the Hebrews, or Achilles representing the Greeks, or Roland representing the Europeans, in every case we have a moral paragon. In every case, the epic hero is the standard by which we judge an excellent and virtuous man. Well, we're going to find that that's also true in the case of Gilgamesh. In addition to that, we'll find that epic always legitimizes, legitimizes the political powers that be. You never find revolutionary epics. Whenever you, one has an epic tradition, it always says that the authorities that are constituted are constituted by God or the gods. Aristocrats are aristocratic and superior and de deserve their superior station in society. They tend to be politically conservative. They hold down People, uh, they hold down egalitarian expectations insofar as they exist, but it also tends to justify the superior position that an aristocratic elite has. And in every case, the epic heroes are not only the, divine, uh, the ideal personification of moral virtues, but they are always the beloved of God or the gods. Whatever the local religion is, 
The gods intervene in epic. This epic is always full of magical, mysterious, divine doings. And in every case, not only will we see these divine doings, but the epic hero is somehow chosen by God, the beloved of God. Right? Without that divine backing, they wouldn't be the superior people that they are. Now, given this fact, let's think about the plot of Gilgamesh. And then once I sketch out the plot of Gilgamesh, because it's a very simple and ancient story, then let's look ahead to the Hebrew Bible and see what we're going to get out of it. Here's what happens in Gilgamesh. In the first case, he's the king of Uruk. Right? And Uruk is apparently a holy city, a sacred city, a city that is chosen and protected by the Babylonian gods, or at least supervised by the Babylonian gods. And the problem is that Gilgamesh is proud, full of hubris, and he oppresses the city. The people are complaining about Gilgamesh. And that's how the scene opens. Now, at the same time that Gilgamesh is oppressing the city, one of the citizens of the city, a hunter or a stalker, goes outside the walls of the city. Now, outside the walls of the city, in every case, in the case of the Hebrew Bible, but also in the case of, say, uh, uh, other sacred cities like Athens, for example, when you step outside the walls, you are symbolically moving from the area of culture and society into nature. So what happens is that the stalker is outside the walls of the city. He's looking around trying to, to uh, hunt down animals, and he sees Enkidu. Enkidu is the physical double of Gilgamesh. He's a superior man. He looks like Gilgamesh. He's a powerful warrior, full of natural virtue or virtue, excellent qualities. He can talk to the animals, right? So he's a natural man. The animals don't run from him. He understands the ways of nature. He is, in some ways, the personification of nature. Gilgamesh, back in the city, dreams of this. He dreams, in fact, of a meteor. And the meteor is, of course, always a heavenly, celestial, symbolic symbol in the ancient world. And the Symbolism behind the meteor dream is that Gilgamesh, is that Enkidu, his double, is out there and he is going to make a remarkable appearance, an important contribution to the history of Uruk and to Gilgamesh's personal life. And the way in which Enkidu is brought into the city is most interesting and it has many biblical resonances. A temple uh, prostitute, because ritual prostitution, temple prostitution is, is common in ancient Mesopotamian religion. A temple prostitute accompanies the stalker outside the walls of the city, has sex with Enkidu. Enkidu is thereby civilized, is thereby tamed. After they have sex, she gives him wine to drink, he becomes drunk, he starts to eat civilized or, or usual human food. The result is that Enkidu is brought into the city. In other words, Enkidu is civilized through the action of women and through access to sexual knowledge. There is a sort of, if not a fall of man, a sort of loss of innocence, a loss of natural separation from society, which is developed through the agency of the temple harlot. So what that means is that there's a connection between sex and religion and society or civilization. And that's what the bringing in of Enkidu represents. Now, when Enkidu comes into the city, immediately he and Gilgamesh have a combat. Because in the epic tradition, typically the way in which a hero shows his prowess is by finding some person that's worthy of his uh, military attention, that's worth having a fight with, and then showing his prowess and just demonstrating the fact that he is a superior man. And symbolically what that means is that the culture or the people that generate him are legitimately there and deserve to be dominating the, the society and the geography around them. So Gilgamesh fights with Enkidu, but they don't kill each other. It's not an immediate bloody uh, 
resolution to the fight. Instead, um, they become fast friends. And in the epic tradition, that's not so unusual. There are examples of such things in Homer, fights leading to a sort of mutual respect between combatants. That's what we get between Enkidu and Gilgamesh. And once they decide to merge, once they decide to live together and be friends, be very close and tight, something like um, the kind of comradeship between military heroes that we see between, say, uh, Roland and Oliver in the Song of Roland. Well, they become inseparable and close, but there's not an asymmetry between them. Both are superior warriors, both are superior men. They decide to engage in a common military expedition. They go and fight someone called Humbaba or Huwawa. It's hard to know exactly how to uh, transliterate the sounds from the ancient Mesopotamian languages, but Humbaba or Huwawa is a monster. And of course, monstrous battles with giant opponents are what epic is all about. Usual size, human scale doings are not in the epic tradition. If you're going to fight anyone, it must be a worthy opponent. It must be a man of superior military prowess, or better still, some sort of monster. Humbaba, or Huwawa, guards the cedars. And this is very important because, A, cedars are a long way away. There's virtually no, no forest and no wood in Mesopotamia. If they intend to build with wood, they have to go someplace that has it and either trade for it or steal it. And in this case, what they decide to do is go out on a raid. Now, mythologically, this is phrased as the conquest of Humbaba, Huwawa, the garter of the cedars. More likely what it is, is just a raid to go out and steal some wood and kill the local inhabitants should they decide to prevent you from taking the wood. This is one of the ways in which actual historical events are gradually transformed into mythological doings. Once they're so transformed, then they can easily be redacted into a general overall epic story. So, they go and they win the cedar wood, they kill Humbaba, and there's another dream that Gilgamesh has, and it's a terrifying dream, and Enkidu interprets the dream. Now, this is worth thinking of as well. The idea that dreams are a sort of message from the spirit world, or the world of the gods, or the world that is somehow apart and different from the world of space and time that we have, is a very ancient idea. It is worth comparing this to, say, Joseph's interpretation of the dream of the seven lean cows and the seven fat cows. Whenever dreams emerge in the ancient world, in the, particularly in the ancient literary tradition, they are always auguries. They are always foreshadowings of some important set of events which we will eventually see. In this case, it seems that Enkidu interprets uh, the dream of Gilgamesh as relating to death, forcing Gilgamesh to think about the problem of death, changing Gilgamesh's perspective on the world. Well, they come back after interpreting the dream, and Ishtar, the goddess, uh, one of the uh, goddesses in the Mesopotamian pantheon, comes down, and she's always taking mortal lovers. It happens all the time in Mesopotamian uh, theology and mythology, and she comes down and offers herself to Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh, perhaps wisely, perhaps not, rebuffs her, says, no, all the men who end up in your life or end up uh, having sex with you end up coming to very bad ends. I don't want anything terrible to happen to me. Now, Gilgamesh himself is partly divine and partly mortal. He's the product of uh, sexual union between the goddess Ninsun and one of the priests of the temple. So he's one of the last of the demigods, semigods. He's not quite human. He's not quite divine. He's in between. But he does refuse to make the direct connection with the divine in the case of Ishtar. Ishtar, when she's rebuffed by Gilgamesh, takes it very badly. She takes it so badly, she goes back up to heaven or back up to the Mesopotamian pantheon, wherever it is she lives, and tells her dad, who is Anu, 
to say, who is apparently the head of the Babylonian pantheon, send down some terrible misfortune on Gilgamesh in the city of Uruk. He treated me very badly. He shows no respect for divinity. What happens is that the bull of heaven is sent down, and as a result, they have, first of all, seven years of famine. Think about the story of Joseph and the, uh, the, uh, the cattle. In addition to that, they have earthquakes. And of course, the bull of heaven is the earliest and perhaps the most primitive way of accounting for earthquakes. They don't have plate tectonics. Since ancient Mesopotamia is dealing with an entirely mythological physics, it should come as no surprise later on that their physical outlook, their understanding of the material world, is going to be replicated and represented in their epic tradition. So, the Bull of Heaven is sent down, and Enkidu and Gilgamesh fight the Bull of Heaven and they destroy it. After that happens, and of course that's a, a change, that's a kind of, it's something very Promethean about undoing the plagues or the evils which are sent down from above. And there's a sort of tension between the human and the divine here. It seems that divine initiatives, divine intentions are being frustrated constantly by humans here. And after the Bull of Heaven is dead, Enkidu actively insults Ishtar. They're cutting the bull apart. He throws a big piece of meat at her. And he's actively trying to generate a conflict between himself and Ishtar. In other words, Enkidu's hubris, Enkidu's refusal to accept his human status, exceeds that even of Gilgamesh. And for that reason, uh, Ishtar goes back up to, uh, to the Pantheon, and it's decided among the gods that one of these two must die. In other words, the only way to, to make good the evil that has been done here is to kill one of them. Enkidu is the one that gets killed because Gilgamesh is still the chosen of the city and the chosen of the gods. So Enkidu is faced with his own death. Over a period of days, he sickens, gets a fever, and dies. And of course, back then, at that level of physical understanding of the universe, if you sicken and die, you sicken and die for some reason. Some spirit, some magical agency is behind it. I mean, nobody has invented microbiology yet. For that reason, the way in which they account for the death is as a retribution for his dis uh, disrespect towards Ishtar. Before Enkidu dies, first of all, he curses the temple whore that brought him into society. But Shamash, who's the, uh, the god of the sun, also the god of wisdom in ancient Mesopotamia, persuades him to relent, says, look, Granted, you have to die, but you would have died anyway out there in the wilderness. It is better to be a man in society within the walls of the city and face mortality there than it is to die like an animal outside the walls of the city. Enkidu accepts that. It is a validation of ancient Mesopotamia. It's a way of saying that this is a good idea, coming into society, living this sedentary life. Well, at the death of Enkidu, Gilgamesh mourns, but then he starts to think, wow, Enkidu looks an awful lot like me. In fact, Enkidu is the image of me. In fact, Enkidu is not so different from me. And then it begins to occur to Gilgamesh, I'm going to die. And this confrontation with one's own mor mortality, in some ways, is the touchstone for what it means to have a bounded ego. And this bounding of the ego, this recognition that there are certain facts of human life in which all must participate, that in some ways signals the fact that we're pulling ourselves out of the earliest and most archaic level of society and expectations about the world to a new, more realistic, more general understanding of what the human condition is. And this recognition of death starts the quest.
Remember, there's always a journey and a quest. Well, here we're going to continue our journey and a quest. Gilgamesh is going to go look for a way to become immortal. All right, so this quest for immortality will become the last half of the book. Gilgamesh decides to take a long journey, which is what all epic heroes do, and he decides to journey to King Utnapishtim. King Utnapishtim is a very fortunate man. He lives alone, very near paradise, at a far distant point from where Uruk is, and it turns out that he and his wife get to live forever because they were both very good people, and in the process of being very good, the gods saved them from a terrible flood. What we have in the case of King Utnapishtim and his wife is the earliest example of the Noah story. This may be where the story of Noah and the flood was actually drawn from. It suggests that the story of Noah and the flood, like certain other themes, like the interpretation of dreams in the Hebrew Bible, actually have a very, very archaic origin. They, are probably, they probably find their source in oral traditions that are some thousands of years old, older than the Hebrew Bible itself. So do not underestimate the antiquity of the materials, particularly some of the themes that we're going to see when we do the Hebrew Bible. Here we have a book that goes back to the very earliest strata of human society, right? Because Gilgamesh himself is 2700 BC. More than likely there's an oral tradition even before Gilgamesh. This is a very, very old set of ideas. King Utnapishtim then, and the idea of a flood caused by people's ill behavior and God's wrath is a very, very ancient theme. Well, Gilgamesh goes on his journey to King Utnapishtim, and he passes by a number of people, or a number of figures, mythological creatures, which sort of mark way stations in his motion. He talks to a group of people, otherwise not well described, called the Scorpion Men. I'm not quite sure what the Scorpion Men are. Perhaps other tablets will be found, which will explain to us exactly what the Scorpion Men are, or what they're doing there. In another case, he goes up to the cosmic barmaid, Siduri. Now, why she has a bar near paradise and what sort of traffic she gets never gets explained. I guess perhaps some of the tablets have been lost or perhaps it isn't a well-redacted poem because it's so early and primitive. But in every case, what he does is stop at a way station, ask directions, and asking directions means everything in the epic tradition. When you're on the way, questing for some valuable thing, asking directions always is pregnant with the greatest symbolic significance. Well, he asks Siduri, he asks the scorpion men what to do, and the scorpion men say, what you're doing is unprecedented, Gilgamesh. And he moves on. He asks Siduri, what is it about human life that makes us mortal and limited? Why can't we live forever? She says, drink up. It's the best you get. Right? This worldly wisdom is all she's going to get from Siduri. So, in some ways, you might compare this to, uh, to Kirky and Calypso in Homer. We're moving from place to place, having adventure after adventure, but we keep on going towards the final goal. Eventually, he man uh, Gilgamesh manages to, manages to cross the water of de waters of death with the boatman or shinabi. Now, this idea of crossing the waters of death, whether it's Styx or some other waters of death, is also a very, very ancient theme. All right? And waters as being the primordial element, as being the chaos, there's all sorts of resonances of that kind here. Well, they cross the water of death, and he goes and actually sees King Utnapishtim. And what does King Utnapishtim say to him? Can't help you. He says, look, only I get to live forever. 
Only I am the friend of Ea, and only I have been given this possibility of living indefinitely. My wife and I stay out here, which is why we don't live back with, in Uruk with you, and I'm afraid there's not much we can do for you, young man. You seem like a worthy and superior kind of heroic fellow, but you are going to have to die. The message here is that no matter how heroic you are, no matter how superior you are on a human scale, you must ultimately face your own mortality. This in some ways might be thought of as one of the important stages in the historical construction of subjectivity. In other words, I'm not convinced that our conception of the ego is a ready-made thing. My sense is that the construction of subjectivity has taken many centuries, and that what we are doing here is, is working through one of the most archaic conceptions of subjectivity in which you do not recognize yourself in the other. Other people die, you see that happen. It eventually dawns on people that, wow, I'm going to die too. That limitation of the self is a big step towards our conception of what the ego is. So, the, uh, Gilgamesh talks to Utnapishtim. Utnapishtim says there's no permanence. He tells him the flood story, and then he says, okay, let's try you, Gilgamesh. Let's have a look at how you work. If you can stay up for seven consecutive days and remain awake, I'll help you out, and you'll be able to live forever. Now, a couple of important things here. First of all, sleep is an analog of death. It's symbolic death. If you cannot resist sleep for a day, much less a week, how much less are you capable of resisting death? deep symbolism involved in that. Second of all, this image of death will be brought up again when we see Jesus preparing for his crucifixion. He says, will you three remain with me? Can you remain awake and pray? Turns out they can't do it either because they are still subject to death as well. The same symbolism and imagery is borrowed. Okay, well, Gilgamesh sleeps for a week. He's tried by sleep, he fails. Now, here's a sort of, not exactly a deus ex machina, but it's a, an imperfectly redacted part of the story. Mrs. Utnapishtim, King Utnapishtim's wife, who otherwise doesn't do very much in the story, as soon as Gilgamesh wakes up, she offers the possibility to her husband, please help Gilgamesh out. Tell him about the plant of eternal life. Now what this suggests to me is that there's another story floating around about the plant of eternal life, and they kind of ran out of story here. In other words, you can't, <laughs> King Utnapishtim tells him he can't live forever. But they want to get the rest of this story in. In other words, they have all kinds of interesting stories about King Utnapishtim. So they kind of cram it in towards the end, and it really doesn't make very much sense, and it really isn't a very thorough or very impressive redaction. It makes the Iliad or the Ramayana look incredibly sophisticated. In other words, this level of redaction is pretty crude. But it does offer us more information about this kind of a journey and this kind of a spiritual quest. What Mrs. Utnapishtim does is says, look, tell him about the plant of eternal life. Well, okay, now King Utnapishtim is stuck. He's got to tell Gilgamesh about the plant of eternal life. And of course, this, tree, this will have all kinds of resonances of the tree of eternal life, which you will find in the Garden of Eden. All right? So, I mean, these, these images are very, very archaic. Utnapishtim says, yes, there is one way. It doesn't really jibe very well with what he's saying before, but there is one way you can live forever, uh, Gilgamesh. What you'd have to do is dive to the bottom of the sea, I'll show you where, get the plant of eternal life, take it home with you, and then you and the people in, in Uruk can live forever and you'll be okay. Again, not a terribly well-redacted story. There are lots of loose ends here. You can see how someone who is used to reading Homer or used to reading something like, something like the Song of Roland would get rather impatient with the kind of infelicities of this redaction. But the point is that he does get the plant of eternal life and then sets home. So Gilgamesh decides to go home with the plant of eternal life. Now this begs the question, how come people don't live forever? 
Well, there must be some part of the story where Gilgamesh fails to live forever and fails to bring home the plant of eternal life. And it turns out that there is. Again, this is not the most impressive kind of redaction, the way in which this story ends. Gilgamesh is on the way home, but he's all hot and dusty and decides to take a bath. And he leaves the plant with his clothes. And so he's in the water, and do you know what happens? A snake comes along and eats the plant. And that's why snakes shed their skins and seem to live forever, and people don't. It's a shame. If it hadn't been for that one bath, people would be living forever now. Now, obviously, this is the most, well, <laughs> poorly tacked on and poorly thought out kind of deus ex machina, or snake ex machina. There's got to be a Latin term for snake, but <laughs> right? it's a snake ex machina, obviously. And this snake, we're going to see him again when we get to the Garden of Eden. It's the same tempter. It's the same person that denies us eternal life, or not person, symbol which denies us eternal life. So it explains to kids in Mesopotamia why snakes shed their skins, because they ate the plant of eternal life. It explains, it explains why people in Mesopotamia died, because Gilgamesh took a bath. And C, it explains how it is that we can have one grand story which talks about the quest for eternal life, but also the quest for selfhood that's characteristic of the earliest stages of human civilization. All right? So the Gilgamesh story ends with Gilgamesh coming back to the city and saying, it's a great city, big thick walls, and I'm a superior kind of a kingly kind of a heroic guy, but I'm dying too. And that's the end, or that's as far as the story goes. In other words, Gilgamesh faces his own mortality. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on here, and my short synopsis doesn't really do justice to it. It's very much worth your reading. The Gilgamesh epic is, I think, a, a neglected and uh, underestimated masterpiece. Not because it's so sophisticated. Actually, it's really crude. I mean, this business with the plant of eternal life, that should be saved for another story. Someone should have redacted this quite a bit better than it was. But it does show that the earliest phases of human society are trying to link up these seemingly disconnected folktales into one general overview of the world. In other words, they are trying to put together a continuous understanding of the world around them. The way in which they do that is through epic. Remember, epic is more than poetry. It is more than literature. It is the encyclopedia of the ancient world. Now, given that we have this understanding of Gilgamesh, I'd like to switch now to some biblical themes which will turn out to be useful for us when we look at the Hebrew Bible a little later on. In the first case, the first big theme is women and civilization. Think about Mother Eve. Uh, generating the fall of Adam, being tempted by the serpent. Well, think of the, of the position of the temple harlot in bringing Enkidu into society. Right? Sexual knowledge leads to, if not the moral fall of man, certainly the transition from nature to society or from nature to the city. Um, Ishtar and Gilgamesh is very important, and this I, would, I can't stress too much. It seems to me that symbolically behind Gilgamesh's refusal to have sex with Ishtar is a recognition of a permanent and final separation between the human and the divine. Remember that Ishtar himself, that uh, Gilgamesh himself is half mortal, half god. His birth owes to the fact that a temple priest had sex with Ninsun, one of the goddesses of the Babylonian pantheon. He says, no, I refuse hereon to be anything other than human. From now on, there will be an indirect, there will be a an indirect connection between the human and the divine. There'll be some partition which separates the human and the divine off. You might want to re-describe this as the invention of the human condition. We are not human. We are human. We are not divine. Our access to it is only attenuated through myth or symbol or story. We can't actually believe we're doing that anymore. We are becoming realistic. 
Now, beyond this question of women and civilization, the construction of the self is very important here. Again, as I argued a little earlier, I believe that the history of the ego or the history of subjectivity has yet to be written. And in fact, what we see in the history of literature, and particularly it's prominent in the history of archaic literature, is the construction, the bounding, the definition, the delimitation of what the self is, and the separation from the se between the self and all the other events and things in the world. And we don't have a complete perimeter around the self until we recognize the inevitability of death. It's when Enkidu dies and Gilgamesh recognizes his own mortality that he becomes human. Right, those are closely connected. A sec uh, another theme we're going to have to think about at some length is myth history. At its earliest phase, myth and history are the same thing, in the same way that myth and religion are the same thing, myth and ethics are the same thing, myth and politics are the same thing. Myth and history start out as the same discipline, or the same big mishmash of ideas. First, let's consider the case of Humbaba, or Huwawa. Now, what we're asked to believe here is that Humbaba is a great, huge monster, threatening to human beings and a terrible blight upon the earth. More than likely, there was no such thing as Humbaba. There's a good chance that there aren't any monsters. And if there aren't, then we're still left with the question of what Humbaba really was. May I suggest that, he is that Humbaba is probably the personification of a tribe of people that lives near the cedars? And probably they had grown quite attached to their trees. And probably they didn't want Gilgamesh and Enkidu to take their trees from them. So probably they put up some resistance and probably had to be killed. But killing peaceful villagers near a bunch of trees, that's not the stuff of epic. Um, it's important when you have an epic to defeat something big and serious and dangerous, a monster, a dragon, Humbaba, you can't beat up your grandmother, you can't destroy a cricket, you can't slay a mouse, you have to do something enormous. So if you're going to kill some peaceful people living near trees, turn them into Humbaba, and you'll be all set, because then you'll have real epic material. Um, this may strike you as funny, and it is funny in some ways, but think about David and Goliath. You know, Goliath was nine foot nine inches tall? Think it over. Right? Perhaps there aren't nine-foot-tall people, but perhaps the necessities of epic require that we have something sufficiently large and serious and imposing so that we have great admiration for the deeds and doings of the epic hero. Now, beyond uh, myth history, oh, and uh, before, let me, before I get beyond that, um, the, just the bringing together of Enkidu and Gilgamesh, maybe there isn't a wild man living out on his own among the animals. Maybe what we have here is the symbolic unification of two tribes, one that lives within the walls of Uruk, and one that lives a nomadic existence outside the walls of Uruk. Perhaps they fought initially, which would account for the fight between Gilgamesh and Enkidu. But then if they unified and decide, decided, rather than fight each other, why don't we go kill the people who live near the cedars? That works out wonderfully. And then you can transfer, and then you can turn it into an epic story, which accounts in a mythological way for the actual history of this city. Um, another important issue that we should consider when we look at Gilgamesh is the question of predictability and the covenant. It's often opaque, rather difficult for people to comprehend why it is that the Hebrew Bible is so concerned with the question of covenant, promise. Why is it that God has to make a promise and we have to make a promise and it's this mutual promise that fundamentally changes the world? This is why. Remember when there's a flood as a result of 
Well, there's a flood down in heaven, Ishtar comes down, and Ishtar is talking to Gilgamesh. And Gilgamesh says, Ishtar, we have a flood here. Do something about this because all our cities, our city walls and, our, and the houses in it are made of mud. And when we have a flood, we have all kinds of terrible problems and our city runs away. Ishtar looks at it and says, oh, wow, I'm sorry. She's kind of a valley girl. Ishtar looks at it and says, wow, I'm sorry you're having a, a flood. We didn't know much about that. It must be really terrible to have a flood. Sure, I'm glad I'm not mortal. In other words, she's totally unsympathetic, and she's useless. She's not in control of nature. She doesn't run all of everything the way Yahweh will later on. When you go to Yahweh with a problem, Yahweh knows, knows what's going on, and Yahweh's behind it. You go to Ishtar with a problem, she says, wow, that's tough. Now, no one is going to worship Ishtar for any length of time if she keeps on saying stuff like, wow, that's tough. She's got to actually have some, some answer to, why, to how we're going to solve this problem of the flood. We know why God and, sends the flood and Noah and all that business, but Ishtar, hey, it's not her job. Very clearly, polytheism has its discontents, and one of the discontents is that it's hard to talk to the boss. It's hard to get to the top. And even when you talk to the boss, you never know if Zeus is down chasing mortal women or if he's been asleep or drunk or something. With Yahweh, it's all one-stop shopping. You go straight to him, and he's running everything. It's obvious what a big jump, then, we're going to get when we move from the polytheism of Mesopotamia to the monotheism of ancient Israel. The reason why we need a covenant is we can't worship a god that's incompetent. And the only way that you can have a competent God that's running everything is to have an agreement between us and him that he always holds up to and that we don't. All right? So the covenant, which we can only have with Yahweh because he's running things, you can't have a covenant with Ishtar because she's useless. Now, another point we should think about, redaction. The Hebrew Bible, like the New Testament, is redacted and redacted and redacted. It is put together out of a collection of stories which overlap to some degree and some have, cases have gaps, some cases have contradictions, and ancient scribes and thinkers tried to sew them all together with varying degrees of success. So when we find odd jumps or strange movements from Jerusalem to Galilee and back to Jerusalem, or odd, seemingly contradictory details. Usually the source of these details is the fact that it was redacted over a period of many years. Think, for example, of the fact that we have two creation myths in Genesis. One would have been enough. But no, they have two traditions, and they want to bring it together, and this is God's authentic word, so you find a way to make them work. So the redactions in the Hebrew Bible are in some places quite as jarring as the redactions we see in Gilgamesh. Right? Well, I'll discuss that at some length when I cover Isaiah. But what we do see here is the attempt to pull together separate and various stories into one coherent account of how the world works. Compared to Gilgamesh, the Hebrew Bible is super sophisticated. Right? There are still gaps and jumps and, and obvious redactions, but it's a much better job that was done over a far greater period of time. Now, um, finish up, think about it this way. All right? First off, um, the state of ancient knowledge, which will apply not just to Gilgamesh, but to the Bible as well, is that all is one. So you're going to find all kinds of knowledge mishmashed together in ancient texts. So astronomy and astrology are the same discipline, and you'll find those inside your ancient text, say, uh, the epic tradition or the Hebrew Bible. Not only astronomy and astrology, magic and mathematics, the same discipline. And so you're going to find all kinds of numerology built into both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. Um, political and moral theory is really mythology. And you're going to find that all built in. Um, physics, well, since our physics is mythological, we'll account for physical reality. Change. Why is it that snakes shed their skin? Because the snake ate the plant of eternal life. It's not, that's not a question of herpetology. It's a question of theology. The lucky snake happened to be there while Gilgamesh was taking a bath. Overall, let's think about it this way. 
Gilgamesh shows us that what I would call the archaic dream time of humanity is ending. We can no longer live in an exclusively mythological world. We will try and create, instead of piecemeal narratives that explain this particular aspect or that particular aspect, we're now shooting for the big picture. And it's this movement towards the big picture out of these local and separate myths that suggests that we're seeing a big change in the self, in the conception of the self and also the conception of the external world that we see in ancient Mesopotamia. And now I want to conclude by trying to show you the connections or what I understand the connections to be between the epic tradition and the Bible. Now this is kind of a, of a strange take, but bear with me and think it through. I think that there's some worthwhile stuff here. It seems to me that it's possible to look at the Bible as having many of the characteristic qualities, motifs, organizing principles of the epic. Certain modifications you can make this work. Let's stop and think about the epic first of all. It has to have a hero, right? There are no epics without people in them. All epics involve a superior man doing superior things, usually the military things, and he's a man that commands general respect. Even the loser in an epic is a man that commands general respect, someone like Hector, right? Everyone admires Hector. Second, every epic has a journey motif. You always have to be going somewhere. You can't have an epic in your backyard. You can't have an epic at home. You never hear about the epic movement from my living room to my kitchen. It doesn't work that way. You have to go on some vast journey and it has to involve overcoming tremendous obstacles because you're a superior man. It's through these ordeals of overcoming these obstacles that lets everybody know what a superior guy you are. If King Utnapishtim lived next door to Gilgamesh, it wouldn't be nearly so good a story. But if he has to go through all these changes and all these journeys over mountains and rivers and meets the scorpion man and the cosmic barmaid and all that great stuff, well then you have a story. Another thing we're going to find in epic is the quest for the valuable. In every, in every case, in every epic, there's always something valuable at the end of our journey and we're going to go get it. And what's valuable changes from epic to epic. Um, the wife of Rama in the Ramayana, um, something like uh, Penelope and Ithaca in the case of the Odyssey. In every case, or, or whatever it is we're looking for, we're always going to obtain something valuable. Think of the, uh, the legends of the Grail, that same sort of an idea. As we go on our quest for these valuable things, we have ordeals. And these are not usual, regular, arbitrary sufferings. They are initiatory ordeals. You learn something from these ordeals. You suffer, you realize what you are. Think of, a, of Odysseus cruising through the Mediterranean from island to island, finding out something about himself, finding out something about the human condition. At the end of these initiatory ordeals, the big payoff, the homecoming. Every epic not only ends, but it ends at home. You can't just cruise around from island to island and keep doing that and then have the epic end arbitrarily in the middle. You have to get back to Ithaca. Or, if what you're doing is the Bible, you have to get back to the sacred city, Jerusalem. Final thing that we're going to see when the, in this homecoming, it always involves a triumph of the sacred. The sacred overcomes the profane in every epic. Think of the Sundiata in West Africa, where Islam overcomes the forces of animism. Think of the Song of Roland, where although Roland himself and Oliver die, the forces of Christianity defeat Islam. In every case, the sacred is vindicated. And when we vindicate the sacred, we vindicate our society, we vindicate its legitimacy politically, morally. Everything about us turns out to be great, and that's what epic tells you. In other words, epic reinforces our collective identity. I might be willing to argue that it constructs our collective identity. So that's what epic does. Now let me connect this to the Bible. If an epic, if we give it a little latitude and say that an epic can have either an individual or a collective hero, I'd like to argue that the chosen people, Yahweh's special 
group of people are a sort of collective hero, and their doings are, in fact, a journey. Think of Exodus. Think of the Babylonian captivity. Think of returning from Babylon back to Jerusalem. Think of the diaspora. Um, journey motifs run all through the Bible. Think of, the of Paul's journeys in the New Testament. Think of the movement of the uh, Hajira, the movement from Mecca to Medina in Islam, or Medina to Mecca in Islam. In every case, we get the journey motif. The journey motif is always a new exodus. So we're always going someplace. We have a collective hero. In the case of the Old Testament, it's the chosen people. In the case of the New Testament, it is the saints, the saved, the church of God, right? The 144,000 that get saved in the book of Revelation. In the case of Islam, it's the true believers. But in every case, there's a sense of a corporate identity, and there's a sense of being a hero on a journey, moving towards some vindication of the sacred, moving towards a final homecoming. It turns out then that if we take the hero of the Bible to be a collective hero, and it can be in the, the chosen people, it can be the, the Christian believers, it can be the Islamic believers, but they are moving on a journey, that means that all the events of history are thereby vindicated, because we get a providential view of all the things that they undergo, and these tests, these trials, these invasions, and these difficulties are all God's way of testing the chosen people, and that means that these initiatory ordeals mean something. You learn something from them. Every time Yahweh punishes people, it's always for a reason, and they always are restored to the sacred city, and when they are restored to it, we have a triumph of the sacred. So what I want to argue then is that the Bible can be thought of as having many important connections to the tradition of epic literature, that the tradition of epic literature is the sort of or stuff out of which subsequent important cultural developments will be made, and that the Bible, in the process of creating this universal moral hero, is also implicitly creating a universal moral code, and one can be thought of as coextensive with the other. I would make this argument to finish up then. I think that the process of coming to know God, or the process of having God revealed to his chosen people, or to the Christian believers, or even later on to the Islamic believers, is a redescription of the process of moral self-discovery and moral invention. And for that reason, I would be inclined to read the sacred scripture of the West as an epic of moral self-invention.